Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Um, with, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Rabbi Chatovsky um, to introduce our, our guest speaker this evening. Thank you, everyone. Good morning. I should say good evening. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, uh, on the screen here because um, we want to hear as much as we can from our very special guest, Rabbi David Kasher, who uh, comes to us uh, now serving as the Associate Rabbi of Ikar, a very interesting and non-denominational spiritual community in L.A. Um, he received a B.A., political science at Wesleyan University. He has a... Um, it's a doctorate in law, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a doctorate in law from Berkeley Law and was ordained at Yeshivat Chovevei Torah. Um, Rabbi Kasher has a, a wide-ranging background, a bouncing back and forth between the Bay Area and Brooklyn, hippies and Hasidim, and has been trying to synthesize those two worlds ever since. He founded Keva, uh, a a well-known adult education um, uh, experiment, I think, a nonprofit specializing in adult education. He served on the faculty of Berkeley Law, Wexner Heritage, Reboot, the Bina Secular Yeshiva, and has also taught at Pardes, Svara, and the Hartman Institute, the Academy of Jewish Religion, is that AJR, Academy of Jewish Religion? Mm -hmm. yeah. And HUC, Hebrew Union College. Uh, he loves teaching text, and um, I said a lot about you this past Shabbat, encouraging people to come here. Um, but he especially loves teaching Parshat Hashavua, Torah, uh, Torah texts in the uh, literal sense of the word. And is the author of a just published book based on a website that he commandeered for a number of years called Parshanut or Parshanut, introducing this evening's guest speaker and Parsha Nut, Rabbi David Kasher. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Chaitovsky. Thanks for hosting us. Thanks for having me. Um, thank to Ethan and to Valley Beit Midrash for hosting me. Um, I was last night in Phoenix, where there's also a Valley Beit Midrash, and um, it was a big cavernous uh, space, and I was at a podium, and uh, it was great, but this is really more my comfort zone, just sitting around a table, so I'm looking forward to this. Um, I did, I wrote this, I'm on a book tour, essentially, a very little, tiny little book tour, Tucson, Phoenix, and Denver, um, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I'm hawking, hawking this, uh, this book, Parshanut. Par, par, it is called, par, I, I think of it as called Parshanut, also called Parshanut, or it appears to be called Parshanut, is because um, the, this book started with a blog that I wrote for a number of years. Um, Rabbi Chetovsky knew me from that from that blog, and um, and when I it was just you know uh, it was a different time. Everyone was blogging. <laughs> um, I feel like blogs are less common now, but the, you know the idea of a blog was like if you have some kind of obsession, something that you 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 love, but you know not that many people love. You you send it out onto the internet, and maybe people will interact with you. And this is the stuff I love. This is. Parshanut is the a word that I use to refer to the whole genre of Torah commentary, commentary on the 
on the the particular part of our Hebrew Bible, that first part that is our that that is our most sacred part, the part that we cycle through every year, the part that we are um, that we hold in uh, in not just high esteem but in with a with, with a special status. The way we relate to this book is part of what gives forth this tradition of commentary. Um, and I talked about that. This book is thought to to be special, unique, and layers and layers of meaning so it it can it, it, on that presumption it can generate um volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of commentary and lots of i got i got the um uh for the website torah.com that was commentary.com so parshanut.com so i took it because uh that's one of the the words that I that I, I used to refer to this 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 I'm gonna talk about tonight. It's not as common word as Torah. And so when I uh, it was out there, parshanut.com, every read it, people who read it said, Oh Parshanat, that's cute, Parshan Parshanat. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, I am the Parshanat. Like I decided to just go with it. It also captured well my, my obsession. Like I, I was obsessed with this stuff and that's the way it is. I started. I just want. I just I was finding things in um, in this book. This book this is just a little volume of Mikraot Gedolot, which is um, uh, Bible with the Torah printed on top, and then you have all these commentators. Each little box here is a commentator. And I talked about this a little bit last night, um, so I won't go too deep. But the first. But in 1517, it had just a column down the middle of the door, and then Rati on one side, an 11th century French uh, commentator, and then the Ebenezer on the other side. It, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 Midrash is, is, is where our, our tradition of interpretation starts, and it starts in a, in a wild place. The rabbis were willing to play with language and, um, and to, to do kind of creative interpretation. Um, and we'll see some of that tonight that really just it, like cracks open the stories that we've read so many times and makes new stories of them and weaves them together. And we're going to see some of that weaving. Now, I say that, but Midrash is often misunderstood as just sort of the rabbis telling tales. They like stories, so they just add some stories to the Torah, right? But um, one of the things that I'm going to... Um, that I, that, I, that I insist on when I teach Midrash is that the rabbis are, are always, they're not just saying things, they're always responding. They have sensitivity to the words of the Torah and they're always responding to some, some question, some, some, something in the text itself that's caught their attention. And it's actually, though it is wild and inventive, it's also a fairly rigorous form of study. They're very, very careful about language. So just, I wanna just, I'm not gonna, uh, it's funny to go on a on a book tour because when you know it's it's Jewish text, you don't just read it. You want to study it. So we're going to study it. So I'm not going to read to you, but I want to read one paragraph that I think sets the tone for um, this this um, methodology that I that that I'm calling Parshanut, and then we'll just do some of it together. Um, and you know, uh, it's it's the one the great thing about writing a book on the Parsha is that it's it's kind of evergreen, like. Any 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 week that you're that you're that you're talking about it somewhere, you just talk about the parsha, and you know it's like it's always relevant. Um, but um, but here's here's just in the introduction a paragraph that I think um, names a couple of assumptions that underlie this this 
this methodology. Um, Parshanut is a genre of Jewish literature formed by two seemingly contradictory assumptions. Number one, the text of the Torah is a work of divine perfection with infinite levels of meaning embedded in every letter, word, and turn of phrase. That's assumption number one. And actually, I did some, some talking about that last night in Phoenix. That this is, that's what I mean by a unique relationship to the Torah. An assumption that the Torah, it's, it's composed with divine intention. And so there's nothing in it that is random. There's nothing in it that is amiss. Everything that seems strange is there for a reason. That's assumption one. But assumption two is, that almost seems like a contradictory assumption, is that every oddity or difficulty in the text must be confronted, challenged, and relentlessly scrutinized. And in fact, it's in the process of, of doing so that one reveals the truth of assumption number one. That is, we do see oddities in the text. We do see strange we do things that don't make sense, don't bother us, that, that, that do bother us in the text. And instead of just keeping quiet and taking it as it is, that's not what Jews do, we attack the text. But we attack the text and we probe the text and we ask questions, whatever questions we have of the, of the text, with the assumption that the text will provide, that the text will, there are, there are answers to be found. And it's in the work of, of, of finding those answers that I have had just, you know, just some of the best times in my life. I, I just love this stuff. And so I want to do some, I, instead of continuing to talk about it, I want to do some of it with you and hopefully you'll love it too. That's really the point of writing this book is just to, to expose a wider audience to this genre and to, you know, get, introduce people to more than Rashi and to, you know, to hopefully expand, Yadil Torah Yadir, to expand the study of, of, this, of this stuff that I love. I taught for, uh, for uh, uh, most of, of a year in uh, a, a, a unique uh, yeshiva in Israel called Bina, um, which uh, is in Tel Aviv. And they, they identify as a secular yeshiva, Yeshiva Chilonit. And that is because they, uh, they, they are hoping to reclaim um, the practice of Torah study for all Israelis and not just for not just for the one side of the classic Israeli binary of like Dati or Chiloni, like religious or secular. And the truth is um, that what what I what I would call pluralism in 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 here in the in in the diaspora um, often overlaps with you know, what in Israel is like secular. But it's secular Torah study. So how secular? It's a different culture, and they have different ways of, of identifying. But yeah, it, it, it fit my kind of plural, pluralistic orientation. <laughs> but I told him I'm 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 inspired by informed by. I'm, I'm, I'm copy You can steal. You can just steal. It's a belong to all of us. But I, but I wanted to have it for lecture for Passover. Okay, great. We're definitely talking about some some Passover related John material. Um, uh, I'm Rabbi Faisalstein. I'm the Rabbi here at the NHBJ. I'm sorry, sure. I heard about a young man yesterday that is just dying to get to Israel. Wants to go on a bird ferry trip, and they're all full. So I started trolling around trying to figure out how am I going to make this happen. And I heard that Valley Beit Midrash is sending to Israel. So I went on their website yesterday, and you see. Rabbi Kasher speaking, and I'm a kind of an Ikar junkie. The community he comes from in LA is very, very special. And I can just tell you, we are in for such a treat today. He's brilliant and interesting. Um, yeah.
Thank you for thank you for, for being here. It's good to learn in person. It's great to learn in person. It's also good to learn with you folks on Zoom. Um, we have uh, uh, Glea, Baruch, Brian, Harold, and Elaine. Harold, another Harold, uh, maybe the same one. Janie, Joel Katz. Oh, I know Joel Katz, Palo Alto. Lauren Blatt, uh, Leah Borden, MH, Natalie Petrucci, uh, Rosalind Sokoler, and Susan Crystal. All right. So um, I got a crowd here. Nice to see you all as well. Okay, so let's begin. Any other questions before we dive in? Okay, so given the two assumptions that I named, that this is like a this is a, a work of, of divine perfection, so everything must have meaning. But on the other hand, whenever we're troubled by anything, whenever th anything seems odd, we have to go after. We have to, we have to, we can't settle for just the text as it is. We have to, we have to find an answer to our problem. And so um, Parshanut as a, as a, as a, as a, a mode of reading always begins with a question. And Rashi, in a way, is the one who kind of teaches us that, that method. Um, there's a, there's a great series, What's Fathering Rashi? And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, Avram Bonchek. And he, he, he really articulated what has become a kind of a, a classic, he turned it into a whole book series, but it's like, it's like a classic question. Rashi said something, what's bothering Rashi here? Something had to be bothering Rashi in order to prompt him to say something. And if you follow that, I don't know if it applies for every single Rashi, but it does seem that most of the time, you can sense that Rashi isn't just sticking in um, what information, what he often does is pull information from the earlier tradition of Midrashim, but he's not just sticking it in. He's sticking it in in order to answer something in the text that's bothering. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start by looking at one verse and going to see if anything in the text is bothering you or anything needs addressing or anything is strange. And that'll kind of open it, launch us forth to um, to taking a look at some of the commentators and eventually getting back to, I just said that Rashi is famous for um, synthesizing um, older rabbinic commentary and giving, you know, the, the perfect little distillation of it. So we're going to see some of that work from, not from Rashi tonight, but some of that same kind of work that'll take us back to a Midrash. So let's pass um, this out. And I think you folks online um, should have a link to it. And we're going to look, um, we have to, as we have to, um, we're going to look in this week's Parsha. And this week, uh, we're in Parsha Bishalach. Bishalach meaning, and when he sent, when Pharaoh sent uh, us out of Egypt. And so we're, we're we started the, the Exodus last week and in Parsha Bo, and we're racing out of Egypt. And um, the, the big event, the main event of this week's Parsha is the splitting of the Red Sea, okay? And this is the moment, this is like the moment where um, the Red Sea splits and um, then uh, uh, too bad for the Egyptians comes crashing back down, okay? It's the last line, and you, you already are gonna know where I'm going with this because the title of the, of the class is Pharaoh Never Died. So you know what, there's some, that, that's, the, that's the strange story that we're gonna be unearthing here. What do you mean Pharaoh never died? But we'll get there first by asking questions of the verse and then seeing, seeing where these commentators are gonna come up with that assertion. So let's, uh, let's begin. Um, Robin, will you read just the first uh, text for us? It's from Exodus chapter 14. Then the Eternal said to Moses, Hold out your arm over the sea, and the waters will come back upon the Egyptians, and upon their chariots, and upon their riders. Moses held out his arm over the sea, and at daybreak, 
the sea returned to its normal state and the Egyptians fled at its approach. But the Eternal hurled the Egyptians into the sea. Okay, and now this is the line that's gonna be our, our launch pad. So let's like read, let's listen to Robin read this line and see, is there anything here that feels like, what's that doing there? The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the riders. Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Okay. All right. Uh, okay, the waters turned back and covered the chariot from the riders Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Okay, any any oddities? I and mean, you can just name stuff. You don't have to get the right one. Any anything strange here or bothering you? Yes, yeah, Seth. Well, the waters were rushing back in and the Egyptians were fleeing the the tidal wave coming. The, the, the waters the waters um from the state of being split, I think. And they began and to they come back in. Come back in, yeah. And the, and the Egyptians saw that and fled. The, the the Egyptians that's uh, that's, that's right. We, we were already learning that in the last verse. And one of the things you could ask, and I think you're asking, is that it repeats the returning of the waters. We're saying that again. And it, it seems like the we already got that sequence that the 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 um if not so the water is starting to go back to its original state and the Egyptians are fleeing. And then the water returns again. And where are we, are we saying more of that? Okay. Um, you have, you have more thoughts there? Okay, good. Other questions? Yeah. Well, Jack. It, it seems extra statement here because initially it says that uh, the riders, the chariots and the riders went into the sea. And then it said, the waters turn back, cover the chariot and ride. Pharaoh's entire army. That's a little bit redundant. Good, good, good. Okay, so now, now we're, we're on to something here. Um, we could keep going, but as it happens, Jacques is bing, 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 hit, hit down the track that I, I want to take us on. Um, that's right, there's redundancy here. And this, which Jacques just named, is one of the when I when we ask what's bothering Rashi or what's the question in the text or what are the what's the midrash bothered by, maybe the most common answer is superfluous, redundant, and that is based on the an assumption again that this text is perfect. And one of the ways that it's perfect, theoretically, is that there's no there's no nothing extra in it. It's not just like you know get getting carried away and just repeating itself. There aren't words in here that are just for you know, oh, sorry, yeah, I already said that. The, the Torah speaks, in other words, in the language of economy. Every word is precise. So now when we hear that the waters turned back and covered the chariots and the riders and Pharaoh's entire army, it seems like that was already covered by the, the, um, the, 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 the chariots and the riders. And then there's a, even a little extra. What's the what's chariots and the riders, Pharaoh's entire army, they all went down into the sea and not one of them remained. Now, you could say, well, that's, that's the way you say it. It's like emphatic, not, not one at all. But we just said they all went in there. So why do, we, why do we have to say not one of them remained? 
What's, what's the point of that? It's just to tell you that absolutely, yes, indeed, all of them, but I, I could have learned that from earlier in the verse. Okay. Well, you wouldn't have learned that all of them perished. Right, maybe one of them swam back. You wouldn't have learned that they all perished unless it told you that they all perished. It never says anywhere, this is the waters turned back and covered the chariots. And you know something? <laughs> Devastating, not a single one, they were all drowned. Not a single good, one. okay, good, that's, that's an answer. That's an answer. That's why, that's why we need that phrase, to know that not only did they all go in, but actually they all died. That's, there's a good answer, okay? We, like, we, we have, this is, this is the method. Like, we detect a little extra, and then what is it doing there? What's, what's that phrase for? And Rabbi Chaitovsky has given us a good answer. What's going on there when it says that God seems to, God seems to shake them back into the get them back in there. What's going on there? They're, they're leaving, but what does God do to back into the sea? Is that just waters coming in themselves, or did God give them a shot? So uh, that's, that's, that's a sensitive reading. And I think Rachel's observation will, will contribute to, will help us understand the um, the, the reading we're about to see that will give some strength to the reading that we're about to see. Uh, never says that Pharaoh went in, paro, all of his forces, but it doesn't actually say that he went in. Okay, so now let's take a look at one of the commentaries that, um, that, 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 that jump in right at this phrase um, and not one of them remain. And what the, the commentary is going to say is, you know, quite... Uh, immediate. They're going to give us going give, to give us the the title of our class right away. But let we're going to try and figure out what, why why are they saying that? How did they get away with saying that? Okay. So this commentary is um, called the Datzikenim, and it's a it's compiled finally and printed in the 1700s. So it it is later, but it's a compilation of earlier medieval commentators. And some of those commentators were in the same group that we refer to as the Tosafists. In other words, Tosos, like in the Talmud, we have Rashi uh, on one side of the Talmud and we have Tosos on the other side. And the, the Tosafists were a group of scholars, some of whom were Rashi's, famously Rashi's grandchildren. So the same, like just two generations after Rashi, same sort of in the mix. And the Datsakanian co compilation of their, of their commentaries often feels a lot like Rashi, has a lot of the same kind of stylistic to it. So let's take a look at what the Dat um, Zakenim here says on the phrase, not one of them remained. Um, Michael, would you read this for us? But one of them did remain, and that was Pharaoh. Ah, not one of them remained, but one of them did remain. Now, first of all, how, uh, we're going to have to understand that. How did they get away with saying the exact opposite? Not one of them remained. One of them did remain, actually. Like, it seems like just a contradiction. And then the next question is, you know, how did they how did they determine that it was Pharaoh? And I think Rachel's given us a little bit of, of the answer there. OK, but we'll see other answers. We'll see other answers. But I, I thought that was a very sensitive read. It says that all of Pharaoh's forces went into the into the sea. Didn't say Pharaoh. Maybe that's what they're picking up on. But wait a minute before we even get there. How do they get away with saying not one of them remain means one of them remain? What's the logic? Yeah, right. Well, the logic is very simple. It's the punctuation. It's like the old joke of the anti-Semites, you know, um, no Jews allowed. And, and then you, you punctuate it a different way. No, 
she was allowed. <laughs> Good. So here Good. it says, So none of them remain. One. And who is the one? Pharaoh. I mean, it's a very logical way because they're emphasizing the word one. Okay, good. Okay, so that's the that's a, that's a that's a good start here. Um, there, that's one way to read it is that the maybe the extra phrase that ends with echad is meant to tell you like there was one, one, one. Pay attention to the one. Pay attention to the one. So playing with the language a little bit, that's good. But we can play with the with even other words there in the phrase. Loni shabahem ad echad. That's the that's the Hebrew. N no remained in them. Adechad could mean um, what? It could mean but one, right? It could mean, in other words, it could mean up to the point ad until one. So it's a phrase which can mean even one, not even one of them remained. But actually, the way we usually use the word ad means up to the point of, up to the point of. So are we saying up to the point of not even one, or is it up to the point of one, one is left, and that one is Pharaoh? Okay? So it, it, it's a little, there's, we're playing a little bit with, but not just playing completely uh, fast and loose. That, that, that's really the meaning of the word ad, and gives them a little bit of a justification to say, oh, not, none of them remained up to the point of one that did remain. Okay? And that was Pharaoh. Now, why Pharaoh? Now, before, before we, uh, so Rachel gave us a good, a good reading of the text. Before we get into the source for this, why would they even want to say this? How does this make sense in the story? What would, what would motivate them to say that Pharaoh, why would, Pharaoh, why would God keep Pharaoh alive? To me, it's like another plague. But I'm Pharaoh. That you're going to go all the way to the bottom of the sea and then you're going to come out again and... Like, in other words, the plagues, like, are just continue to torture him. Continue to torture him. Good. Okay, so he'll come up, and maybe he'll, he'll receive more at the hand of God. Yeah. He serves as a witness as to what, as to the miracle of the plague. He's, he's a witness. He's not part of the Jewish people. He's an objective witness mm -hmm. as to what happened. Good. Okay, good. Let's hang on to that thought, because we're, we'll eventually see something like that in the Midrash. In other words... If Pharaoh survives, there's going to be a reason for it. Pharaoh's going to be able to tell this story, give testimony. Pharaoh will be a witness to everything. We're going to be using Pharaoh for some purpose. Not just, I mean, of all the people to save, that wasn't the person to save. Unless there's a reason to save that person. Right? Okay, any other thoughts? All right. Well, uh, yes, Seth. Like an Amalek type, like there's always a Pharaoh, there's always an Amalek. Just for us, not a mortal moment it's just a force that's ongoing i love that answer um because it, it plays on something that happens in the in the torah it, itself which is that we see lots of pharaohs and sometimes it's even it, it, it gets hard to remember which pharaoh we're dealing with right the book of exodus begins with um right? there's a new pharaoh all of a sudden and and so the pharaoh that joseph knew is gone and now there's another pharaoh and and then, uh, the, like when Mo, when 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 Moshe flee, uh, flees from that Pharaoh, we hear when he's away in in Midian that the Pharaoh dies, the king of Egypt dies, 
and another pharaoh pops up. And remember, we had pharaohs back in the book of Genesis as well, not just the Joseph one, but there was a pharaoh that Avram and Sarah were in contact with. Was that the same pharaoh? And so there is this sense in which it's, uh, they're all like, yeah, they're all different, but they're all the same. Like the pharaoh is this kind of permanent force that never fully goes away. That there's a, it's sort of like a, like a, like someone is playing the role of the pharaoh, but it's always, it's all, it, it, it doesn't really matter who it is. It's always there. Yeah, I like that idea as well. Okay. To, to build up Michael's point, could it be even to further demean Pharaoh that he was so cowardly as to not even follow his army into the sea and not to perish with them? And as to demean the, the oppressor even further? Yeah, that's interesting. In other words, to steal even his, the glory of battle from him, right? Yeah, I think that's, 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 a, that's an interesting read as well. Um, later collection of earlier commentaries tells us Pharaoh survived. Where do they get this from? So they are most likely picking up on, and I say most likely, um, we're going to look at Pirkei de Rebeliezer, um, that is one of the most beautiful collections of, uh, again, is Makes sense it would be school of because it's just such good storytelling. It has like it has the feeling of of you know of legend in it, and it tells all kinds of um, tall tales. Though again, I would I would I would uh, I would insist always based in some way on the words of the text itself, not just making up stories, but definitely telling. Um, some of the wildest stories we have in our tradition. And this indeed is the, is the source for the idea that Pharaoh didn't die there in the, in the, in, in the Red Sea. Um, but the Midrash, once we start uh, looking into it, is going to pick up also on Jacques' point and is going to find a role for Pharaoh uh, Egypt. Okay. So let's, uh, let's take a look. This is, uh, this is, uh, this is a, really, a really juicy piece of midrash here. So, um, Evelyn, will you read just the first uh, paragraph? Rabbi Nehunia ben Akana said. Rabbi Nehunia ben Akana said, said, Know the power of repentance. Come and see it to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who rebelled in the greatest possible way against the God, the Most High, as he said, who is he that I should recognize his voice. And with the same language, with which he's been to repentant, as it said, who is like you? Eternal one among awesome infinite. Okay, let's stop there for a second. All right, first of all, we're framing this whole midrash with Tedalacha Kochachuba, know the power of repentance. Okay, so there's we have a we have a, a frame. I have a, you know, I have a title for my class. Uh, uh, Rabbi Nechunia Benakana has a title here. Know the power of repentance. You can see it from Pharaoh. And we're going to see a few proofs for the idea that Pharaoh is the ultimate example of tshuva, of repentance. One is that Pharaoh says, um, Who is God that I should listen to, to God? All right? Which is, you know, pretty audacious. Right? It's like, I, I don't care about this God, uh, God Almighty is coming to confront Pharaoh and he doesn't care. Okay. And then with the same language, 
Pharaoh says, Kamocha, right? said, Who is God? And then he says, Who is better than God? He knows he's better than God. So, same kind of phrasing. He's changed his tune, but he's using the same language to express an entirely different perspective. But he wasn't the one who said that. That's right. What do you mean? That, that was the song of the city. Well, yeah, but... No, but that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Here, I'm going to go get my... Um, yeah. But that's right. There's a little bit of a trick here. Is that he used the exact same language, which that was Pharaoh talking in the first... Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. My little one. Um, that's right. He uh, He says... In the song, he says that first part in chapter five, who is the eternal that I should hearken to his voice. But chapter 15 is taken from the song at the sea. And it's true that there is a certain part of the song of the sea where, um, where Pharaoh is, where the enemy is quoted. Amar Oyev, the enemy says, Erdof, Asig, Achalek Shalal, I'm going to pursue them, I'm going to catch up to them, I'm going to take out my sword. And I'll fill my wishes. I'll, I'll unleash my sword. Right? So Pharaoh is talking, but by the, that's in verse 9. By the time we get to Mi Chamocha Be'elim, Hashem Mi Chamocha Ne'edar B'Kodesh, Nurati Lot, who would like you among gods? The quote has ended. Right? That's Moses talking again. That's the people of Israel talking again. So it's kind of like they took the quote and they like, <laughs> they put it a few verses later, and then they got to have Pharaoh saying this. Okay, so there's like a, there's a kind of a strange claim here that on the one hand is, is, is using the language to create a parallelism, but on the other hand is, is getting a little bit loose there. Why, why do they want, what, why is it important that Pharaoh use the exact same language um, to deny God um, and then to celebrate God? What is that, what do they mean by that? Why is that important for Rabbi Nehemiah? Because all the playing were to teach him a lesson, and he finally got it. That's right. That's right. It's very direct. It's like the guy who said, "Who is this God?" Now he's the guy that knows who is this God, and he uses that "Who is" language, right? So it works. And that's Chuba. He answered his own question. He's now learned the lesson. Okay. All right. That's one answer. Um, now let's take a look at. Uh, I think an even better answer. Um, so let's, uh, let's keep going. Rivka, will you read the next part for us? The Holy Blessed One. The Holy Blessed One saved him from among the dead. From where do we know that he never died? Because it says, I could have stretched out my hand to trust you, but I have spared you for this purpose, in order to show you my power, and in order that I may name you Okay. Okay, that's not bad. That's a, that's a pretty good citation for our prayer. Now, here we have it. They finally come out and say it. Um, the Holy Blessed One saved him from among the dead. That's the source for, that's where the Datsakanim are getting their Pharaoh never died idea. But how do we know that Pharaoh never died? Well, from this verse, and actually the verse says, I have spared you for this purpose. The plague, I could have killed you with this last plague, but there's still more plagues to come. So I have kept you alive to this point. It was not a promise that he was going to keep him alive forever. It's as if the, 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 the Midrash 
is taking this line and using it to say it's as if God said that to Pharaoh at the end of the story as well. This is, this is what God wants to do with Pharaoh after all, is to keep him alive in order to tell a story, in order to, um, uh, to, to show uh, God's power and, to, and, to, and that, uh, that, that someone may, may uh, spread God's name throughout every land. Yes. Well, y- yeah. I mean, I think that I think that we've seen this now. There's like one move after another, where there's like a little, um, a little kind of like fancy footwork here. And I, on the one hand, they are using the tools of the language of the Torah, but on the other hand, they seem to be suggested that the language of the Torah is not to be read in in such a linear, in such a shot fashion. That actually, we can hear echoes in one place in the Torah, and we can sort of apply it later. Or we can imagine that the who is like you among the gods is something that Pharaoh also would have said. So there is a little bit of um, of license that's being taken here, no question about it. There's like a, a serious attempt to, to, to harness the, the material of the text to make it, to make the points, but it is, it, it is getting a little loose, no question about it. And there are many who do not prefer this style of interpretation precisely because it's too loose. It's not, it's not rigorous enough, it's not precise enough. And in the medieval period, figures like Rashi will be on the tradition of Midrash, but on the other side of that column, right on that first printed page, the Ibn Ezra is known as much more of a, a, a literal reader who cares about grammar and syntax and a clear linear understanding of the text as it proceeds. So these are different styles also, and we're seeing in the Midrash a, a, a bit of a looser style, okay? All right, so that was one proof that same one that said who says, oh, who is like you? And then another proof, which is that God actually said that God was gonna spare Pharaoh so that Pharaoh could somehow serve as a testament to God. And then we get what I think is actually the big reveal. The big reveal is not just that, that God saved Pharaoh. The big reveal is the next line. Seth, will you read the next line for us? So he went and ruled in Nineveh. So he went and ruled in Nineveh. Okay, good. The rabbi likes that one. That's wild, right? Because where's Nineveh? Well, geographically, yeah. I mean, where in our book is, that's right. Where in our book is Nineveh? Book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. That's a, that's a, that's a crazy thing to say. Pharaoh didn't die, saved from the sea, so that God could do something with Pharaoh, and as if finishing the thought. And what God does, or what Pharaoh decides Pharaoh ought to do, is to remember this is all under the coterit of know the power of repentance. Okay, so now we're going to see the power of repentance as Pharaoh heads off to the land of Nineveh, which we know from the book of Jonah. Okay, now let's just remind ourselves. I want to jump forward and then jump back a little. Before we finish the Midrash, let's just remind ourselves of the basics of the story of Jonah, uh, which we, you know, we read it every Yom Kippur. It's a great story. It's, it's a classic. But if you just turn the page, let's just reintroduce ourselves to just the, the opening of Jonah, because Jonah is... Uh, it's a it's a good story. It's a complex story because it's the story of a prophet who does not want his mission. Right? Okay, Jacques, will you just read the first uh, section there from Jonah? Uh, Jonah one. Yeah. The word of the eternal came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go at once to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim judgment upon it, for the wickedness has come before me. 
Jonah, however, started to flee to Tarshish from the Eternal. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to sail with the others to Tarshish away from the Eternal. Okay, all right. So that's that's just a reminder. First few lines there of the book of Jonah, that's where he, he's headed. You got to talk to the people of Nineveh because that great city, because... Um, because their wickedness has literally like come up before me. Now, why we're going to explore this connection for the for the remaining time we have that the, the pharaoh of Egypt is now the now the the ruler of Nineveh. But what just 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 in that first brief description, what what is it that that would lead us? To, to make a link between the Egypt story and the Nineveh story? What are some of the parallels that we know between those two stories? Or even if you're not so familiar, even that you might see from some of the texts that we've, that we've just read. Where is Tarshish? You know where Tarshish is? Oh, you know where Nineveh is? Where is it? We hope it's still. What does that mean? Oh, oh, oh. You flew over it today. It's it's the wrong it's the wrong direction. It's not the direction to Nineveh. And he he famously boarded the the ship in uh, in Yafo, right? So he's like heading away from from Nineveh as he's heading out. I don't know I don't know where Tarshish is exactly. Um, okay. Um, so what what we have in um, in Egypt is a situation of a wickedness that rises up to Pharaoh. Pharaoh hears about the, hears the cry, Vital Shabbatam, their cries have, 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 have come up to me and I now, I hear this, what's that? Rises up to God. Rises yeah. up to Pharaoh. Did I say Pharaoh? Oh yeah, no, I don't want to confuse those characters. Rises up to God. So, okay, so it's another story of God becoming aware of a problem down there on earth and sending a prophet to go and deal with it, right? But, the stories are very different in some obvious ways, right? Because the prophet that goes to Egypt brings the doom and destruction of Egypt. Whereas the prophet that goes to Nineveh ends up communicating a message which is pretty quickly well-received. And isn't right? the, aren't the Nineveh people, they aren't even Jewish. Right? They're not even Jewish. They're not even Jewish. Okay. So, um, so the, and that'll become relevant because jo Jonas, well, we'll we're going to get there, but Famously, Jonas seems like he doesn't even want these people to repent. Isn't, isn't the story like, the story of Jonas is like 500 years later? Than, than, than That's right. Years. That's right. You have to preserve, you have to preserve Pharaoh for a hundred. Like when it says he went and ruled in Nineveh, it's like he lived for a long time and then eventually found his way into the leadership of Nineveh. He was sleeping. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to our Midrash. Now that we've sort of like sort of vaguely refreshed our memory of the story of Jonah. Let's go back to our Midrash. Pharaoh went and ruled in Nineveh and look at what he did. And this is like, this is where... Uh, now, remember, we're dealing with the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that we know from the story of Egypt. We're putting him into the Jonah story. And then what does the Pharaoh do in the Jonah story? All right. So let's uh, let's Lisa, will you finish this last uh, paragraph of the Midrash when the Holy Blessed One? The Holy Blessed One sent for Jonah to prophecy against the destruction. Pharaoh heard and immediately rose from his throne, tore his garments, put on sackcloth and ashes and had a proclamation made to all his people that all the people should fast for two days 
and all of those who did wicked things should be burned by fire. <laughs> by the way, I gotta say, I love that last that last that ending piece. It's like still Pharaoh, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he's like a, we're, we're, this whole thing is a setup for him having done chuba, and he, he he's different, but he's not that different, right? Still, and as for those people, burn them. But um, before he says that, he immediately rose from his throne, tore his garments, put on sackcloth and ashes, and a proclamation made to all of his people. Now, that's significant. That's significant. He hears the message, and he gets up, and he says, we got to change. we got to do something. Why, why is that significant? What is that teaching us? What is that teaching us? That, that, that Pharaoh was suddenly so willing to, to listen to the, to the... Yeah, he knows. This guy knows what happens when a Hebrew prophet comes to warn you of doom and destruction. You better start changing things quick or else I've seen this stuff. Believe me, believe me, I know. So this is, this is, remember, this was a lesson on the power of tshuva. And now, you know, tshuva in this case becomes not just like an emotional reflection, you know, that was really, but a lesson learned. Like having gone through the experience, I know now what's going to happen here. And so it's a completely different reaction. Now, that's a way of talking about the figure of Pharaoh um, having transformed from the days of Egypt to the days of Jonah, if we read Pharaoh as having made that kind of transformation and getting up and with, you know, an impassioned call to his people to do tshuva. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful thought, but actually... It's also borne out very well. This is not just a random thing that they're saying about Pharaoh. It's actually borne out very well by the text of, of Jonah itself. Because if we go back, and now we'll flip the page and, and look into Jonah. If we go back into, into the story of Jonah, when Jonah tells that Jonah doesn't want to deliver the message, and Jonah seems to actually know what's going to happen. He doesn't want to deliver the message. It seems almost like he doesn't want them to repent. Um, and we'll get to that eventually. But he tells them the news. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, Rabbi, will you, will you pick up for us there in uh, the third chapter? When the news reached the king of Nineveh, i.e. Pharaoh, he rose from his throne, took off his throne, put on sackcloth, and sat ashes. And he had the word cried by decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast flock or herd, shall taste anything. They shall not graze, they shall not drink water. They shall be covered with sackcloth, man and beast, and shall cry mightily to God. Let everyone turn back from his evil ways and from the injustice of which he is guilty. Who knows that God may turn and reconsider God may turn back from God's blazing anger. Perhaps we shall not perish. Okay. So the Midrash isn't just making this up. I mean, maybe it's making up the idea that it was Pharaoh, but that is the response of the king in Nineveh. And it's quite surprising, actually. I mean, given what we've seen of wicked kings who receive messages from prophets, this is pretty remarkable. Like, this is immediately raises from the get everybody everybody we've just heard jonah came from a far off land and we his god is is very upset with us and we gotta all we gotta repent now right it's like it's too easy 
right? That, that's an oddity in the story of Jonah. Why is the, why is the king there so willing to immediately accede to, to the demands of the prophet? Well, now we've got an answer because this king knows something because this king has experience, because this king has seen it all, has been through history and knows that when you don't listen to the prophet, bad things start to happen, right? So this last phrase, who knows, God may turn and reconsider, God may turn back from God's blazing anger. This is a person who knows when God gets angry, we are doomed. We're all going to perish. I only barely made it out of the Red Sea myself. So Believe me, we got to go full force here and repent. And this is a person who knows exactly what, what has to happen. And that's somewhat, uh, somewhat unexpected, okay? So the insertion of the Pharaoh figure into the story, though it's a little strange, in a way it solves a problem. It solves a problem in, in the Jonah story, which is what, did, what was it that made them repent so quickly? And it seems the Jonah story is, is not attributing that repentance to everybody, but to the king. It's the king that says, get up, get up, get up, get up. Let's, let's do this. Okay, so we've solved, we've solved one problem. Um, but there's another problem that I think um, this Midrash does um, good work in solving. And it's one of the most vexing problems. I've now alluded to it a couple of times. One of the most vexing problems in the book of Jonah which is not just that Jonah flees from his mission, that we can understand Moses didn't even want his mission. It's like hard to be a prophet, okay? That, that we can understand. Maybe we can even relate to. But the, the strangest thing is, okay, finally he accepts his mission and he goes and he tells them, and boy, it works. It works immediately, surprisingly immediately. And Jonah cannot stand it. Jonah is infuriated at the... At, at the tshuva, at the repentance, Jonah doesn't doesn't want the people to be saved, and it's it's almost difficult to hear a Hebrew prophet talking in this way. So, um, e, do you want to read the the next piece here from um, Jonah? This is the the last um, chapter in Jonah, and this is where Jonah suddenly has this outburst that that's like a little unpleasant to end the story in this way. Will you read it for us. This displeased Jonah greatly, and he was to the eternal saying eternal one isn't this just what i said when i was still in my own country that is why i fled beforehand to Tarshish, for i know that you are a gracious and compassionate god slow to anger abounding in kindness and renouncing punishment so now please eternal one take my life for i would rather die than live what I'd rather die than live. I'm so, I'm so broken. I'm so disgusted. I'm so, um, I'm so aggrieved at what's just happened, which is what God wanted to happen, and which is just a mass of people repenting and turning to the good. Why is Jonah so upset? What is it about about this story that has so bothered Jonah? But now we now we have an answer, don't we? Because this is Pharaoh. All right? if, if the Midrash is right, it provides us a little bit of an answer to Jonah's displeasure at the end because Pharaoh is saved again. Pharaoh is the one who did repentance. Pharaoh of old, Pharaoh who, who, who oppressed my people, who put my people in bondage. That Pharaoh is suddenly been once again saved by God, right? And yeah, he's learned his lesson. And yeah, he's done tshuva, but it's like, you know, I mean... It, 
this 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 comparison gets overmade. You know, we always mention Hitler, but it's a good it's a it, it, the, the shock of that name is a good way of thinking. Like, do you do you feel good when Hitler learns his lesson and realizes he's not going to do it next time? It's like, ugh, no, just kill that guy. I have no compassion for this. Just kill the Pharaoh. I don't want him to. Why did Jonah? Why was he so anxious about these people repenting? Unless perhaps these people are the next round of like Pharaoh's empire, right? Pharaoh's at his old tricks again. He started another country and he's ruling over another people. And this time he gets a, another message from a prophet and he has a chance to save himself and he does it right away. Well, of course he does it right away because he was saved from it before. And it's like Pharaoh keeps getting a break here and Jonah can't stand it. Jonah can't stand it. This is disgusting. Enough of this. Kill Pharaoh already, okay? So you see that like, the insertion of Pharaoh into the story, which seems so strange, in some ways does some work to answer some of the strange questions in the story of Jonah. Okay. Yes, Seth. Are you suggesting that Jonah felt this way at the beginning of the journey as well as at the end? He knew that he could get a lot of good things happening, but he knew one guy would slip out. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems that way because that's what Jonah Jonah said. Um, hello, 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 Zedvari. I, I, this is what I was saying when I was back in my own country. In other words, like, oh, yeah, we know what's going on in Nineveh. We know who I, and maybe not everybody makes the connection, but Jonah is a Hebrew prophet. Jonah has a tradition. Jonah looks back at the same stories that we look back on. And if the Midrash is right, which, of course, you know, we were playing a little bit. It's a little fanciful. But if, we got, if we're going to stick to that reading, then suddenly, boy, it, it, something that never made sense in the story makes perfect sense. Which is, Jonah's like, forget about this. I'm not interested in saving these people. No, thank you. Not this mission. I'm not taking this mission. Okay? So the um, book of Exodus comes in. And, and sort of strangely does a lot of work to answer some of the questions in, in Jonah. But um, there's, there's a little bit more. We'll, we'll, um, we'll come to the end here. Um, we've, we've solved some of the problems in Jonah. We've seen how Pharaoh um, was saved from the Red Sea and continues to be saved perhaps um, distressingly, but, but certainly in order to make my name resound in all of the lands, Right. That was the that was the verse that the Midrash used. I will I, I am sparing you. I'm keeping you alive so that everybody will know my power and so that my name will resound throughout the land. Now, now that really seems to be borne out. Um, but just just to return for a moment to this uh, text we just read. Um, how how did Jonah know that God um, was the kind of God that would forgive these people? What was it? What is it that Jonah says about God that tells us that Jonah knows, oh my gosh, God is gonna, God's gonna relent and forgive these people again. So he says, he says it in there. And he has some very specific phrasing. I know, you are a gracious and compassionate to God, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. That's what Jonah says to God. I know that about you. Now, how does Jonah know that about God? Those are the famous 13 attributes of mercy that Jonah is named in the book of Jonah. Jonah names the 13. I know you. I know what you do. I know you are gracious and compassionate, and I don't want to see it applied here. Where does Jonah know that from? From the prophecy of Moses. 
Where did we first hear these 13 attributes of mercy sp spoken? Well, after what, Jack? After the golden calf. After the golden calf. After the golden calf. After the people had sinned greatly before God, even after being liberated from Egypt, they, even after seeing God at Mount Sinai, they worshiped the golden calf. And it's the greatest sin that our people have ever collectively committed. And Moses throws the tablets down and Moses is done with these people. I can't take, no, no way they don't get a second chance, but God gives them a second chance. And God has Moses carve another set of tablets. And just after God has Moses carve another, another set of tablets, um, we read this in the book of Exodus. You want to read the, the next piece here, Can the I eternal passage? Yeah, please. So why does he use the word um, when renouncing punishment in Jonah and the words the word truth and truth? Yeah, it isn't a, right, there are slight variations here. It isn't an exact quote. Um, and I bolded the parts that are echoed, but you're right, it isn't exactly the same. And I think we'll see that it's actually a bit of a mashup. So just hold on for a second on that question. We'll, we'll return to it if, you, if, uh, if you're still troubled. But let's, let, the, the, that's, that's right. Um, uh, what uh, what John, John is your name? Yes. What John is saying that it's not exactly the same. Let's look at, at Moses's language, or really uh, um, God's language there in the Book of Exodus. Okay, so the truth piece, as John noted, that's it, that's it's not that's not in jo in Jonah's phrasing. In fact, there's a there's a there's another there's a couple of little differences. Uh, he says that God is El Chanun Berachum, whereas God says I am El Rachum Berachum. It's not a direct quote, but it's like clearly it's this articulation. It's this phrasing that has been sort of echoing throughout the ages. And Jonah knows this. And Jonah heard it from Moses. And Jonah heard it from Moses who told it from God, who said it to Moses after the, our people had sinned greatly and didn't deserve a check, second chance, but were given a second chance. Okay. So there's a little bit of a quote there. And let me just say one last thing here, which is that there is another figure in the book of Jonah who seems to be quoting the earlier stories of Moses. And, and that is, and that is the, the king of Nineveh. Because if we go up to the, to, to the text just above, the, um, the Jonah chapter three text, the last line there is, Mi yodea, who knows, yashuv v'nicham ha'elokim v'shav mecharon apo. Who knows? God may turn back and reconsider, reconsider, and uh, God may turn back from God's blazing anger. Okay. So now take a look um, at what Moses says to God to get God to relent after the after the golden calf. So there's that blazing anger phrase. That's that's where it first appears. And it's like Pharaoh, I don't know how Pharaoh would have heard this, but the king of Nineveh slash Pharaoh, that figure is like repeating the idea that God can turn back sometimes from God's anger and reconsider. And he uses that language, v'nicham. And Jonah also uses that language, you are erechapayim v'rav chesed v'nicham, and you reconsider, right? Because that's the important thing for both of them is that God potentially reconsiders. So the, the language is a little different, as John noted, but both of them do seem to be borrowing from these earlier stories of Moses, right? So there's this, there's, a, there's, there, there's our last real justification to think of the story of Jonah as, is it really the Pharaoh there? But, but 
I don't know, but certainly these stories are hearkening back to the early stories of Moses, okay? So the book of Exodus does some work we've seen to help us understand better some of the problems that we had in the book of Jonah. But the book of Jonah then also, now that we've seen these echoes between the two stories, the book of Jonah then also becomes a kind of commentary on the book of Exodus, right? Look at all these people and they were wicked and maybe they were led by Pharaoh, but a prophet came and they repented and they were forgiven, right? So what does that mean for now that we have these connections back to our story? What does that mean for us in our story? We too were wicked. We too failed. We're not the, we're, the Pharaoh's not the only wicked uh, being in the world. The Egyptians aren't the only uh, people who have done wickedness. Neither are the people of Nineveh. We also, not long after that, that exodus, we also were, were, um, were, were wicked. We also failed. We also sinned, but we were forgiven. We were, God relented. God is merciful. And just like the Pharaoh of Egypt seems to have learned his lesson, so maybe the message is like, we remember what Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana said, know the power of repentance. Know the power of repentance. And what does that mean? It means learn your lessons, study your history, study your Tanakh. Remember the way that God can forgive. And even when you're getting the message that you have screwed up and you have done wrong and the prophet is standing before you, if you just spring right into action and you try to try to do everything you can immediately and don't delay, don't be like Pharaoh of Egypt, be like the king of Nineveh, get up and just do it. And who knows, maybe God will, will reconsider, okay? So the, the book of Exodus is, is, has, has altered our understanding of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah then now gets read back we can read it back into the book of Exodus. Now you have these two stories sort of working together to shape our, our ongoing understanding of the, as Rabbi Nehunia Ben kind of put it, the power of Chuba. Okay? So, and that is the power of Midrash. We've seen the power of Midrash to yes, play a little fast and loose with the text, but definitely to be in the text and to be weaving stories together to create not just a whole new story, but a deeper insight into the two stories being woven. So. That's, that's just one example of how, how, uh, how the earliest tradition of Parsha Nuth works. And uh, any last thoughts before we close? All right, well, it's really been delightful to learn with you. I really, uh, I feel so grateful to be able, it, it's worth writing a book to be able to travel around and talk about the things you love with people. Um, so I'm really grateful for your coming today. And um, there are some books if you wanna buy them and uh, I'll see you next time I'm in Denver. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.